one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright everybody and welcome to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 407, part 1 of 1, for the week <laughs> of Monday, March 5th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome Gene. Thank you Sawyer and I just want to go ahead and send out a uh, my, my thoughts to everyone that was affected by this past week's uh, tornadoes. Again, we're, we're thoughts, our thoughts are with you. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. And this is Mark Ratterman version 1.0. I'm liking 1.0 still. That technology never gets old. Much appreciated. (laughs) How much do I owe you? (laughs) (laughs) But while we're discussing old technology, the space shuttle was old technology, and that has been retired. So the future has apparently privatized space launches for the United States. And one of those major players in the privatized space game is SpaceX and their Falcon and their Dragon. Well, on Thursday, March 1st, they did a dress rehearsal for the test of the Dragon space capsule, which is scheduled to head off to the International Space Station sometime in April with no official date set yet. The Launch rehearsal was a five-hour launch readiness test at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, where they went all the way through the entire countdown, leading up until a planned abort at T-minus five seconds, which occurred at 12.18 p.m. Eastern Time on that day. The test apparently went really well, and they just have minor issues to overcome, which will allow them to launch sometime in late April to the International Space Station. And if that is successful then the next flight might actually carry actual cargo. This is uh, really, really mission critical for the International Space Station. Over the, well, we were, we were running our, our two uh, interviews with, uh, uh, with Amory Stanger. Again, Amory, thanks a whole bunch for, for sitting in with us. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Europeans announced that uh, the ATV, ATV number three, is going to be delayed for some unknown reason, although uh, I understand that a, a new launch date uh, is out there right now. Um, so that's one deal. The new launch date, by the way, of the one that you're talking about, ATV-3, the right. uh, Eduardo Amaldi, is March 23rd. Right. Uh, there was an initial delay for, a, you know, I, I did not get, it was an unexplained reason. We didn't know exactly why. Um, but apparently the new launch launch date is, has been set. Orbital Sciences, back in February, around February 21, said that they too were experiencing a delay. It wasn't due to 
anything with the uh, with the Cygnus spacecraft. It was due to launch facilities that uh, needed some upgrading in order to to support tor- the the Taurus launch vehicle. Um, so, you know, th- this is kind of crit- this is kind of critical. And of course, we know about the Russians and and their issues of late. So if SpaceX can go ahead and carry the banner, um, it would probably be a good shot in the arm for ISS support. So, again, hats off to them, and uh, I know the world is watching them, but uh, no pressure. No pressure at all, and this is huge because there were talks previously about COTS-2 and COTS-3, which were the missions here of actually combining them to go to the International Space Station. The fact that they have that go-ahead is impressive, and if they succeed, this will be a huge step in privatized space. Yeah, indeed. And it's it's going to be awfully critical, uh, again, for the future of the International Space Station. So, you know, our, our fingers are crossed, and uh, I, I'm sure that, uh, that they'll pull it off and, and do it quite nicely. By the way, what's going on with NASA's future capsule, the Orion? Anything going on with that? Yes, indeed. There was a successful drop test uh, last week of the uh, uh, of the Orion vehicle, it was dropped from an altitude of 25,000 feet uh, above uh, the U.S. Army's Yuma Proving Grounds. This is coming from uh, an article I'm looking at from Spaceflight Now. Um, and the whole test was just absolutely perfect. Uh, the drogue chutes were successfully deployed between 15 and 20,000 feet, followed by the main, main parachutes, which were deployed, and a, uh, and a land landing. Um, and the Orion had touched down at a speed of 17 miles an hour, well below the maximum design touchdown speed of the spacecraft. So, again, this is just absolutely ecstatic news for the the Orion development. So I believe they're still looking at, uh, Sawyer, correct me if I'm wrong here, we're still looking at a 2014 sometime uh, uh, unmanned flight test for the first Orion capsule, uh, probably on on a Delta IV Heavy. And uh, we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed, and hopefully it'll meet that date. But so far, so good on, on the Orion side of the house. I'm disappointed in that, though, Gene. Why is that? I just think we need a better name than drop test. I mean, it seems obvious that when you go up <laughs> anywhere, if it's 10 feet or 25,000 and you drop something, that it's going to fall. They need a better name. Everything else was fine, but drop test. Well, <laughs> I know. What yeah, do that's... you expect? Yeah, it, it doesn't fill you with a lot of confidence, though, does it? Yeah, there's no glamour, no spritz, no shine, no no gee whiz. But then again, no. is there glamour of smacking down into the earth on a capsule, falling with a parachute? No. <laughs> oh, boy, that makes me really, really pine for the old days, doesn't it? <laughs> Depends on what you consider the old days, 60s and 70s capsules, or 80s through 2011, nice glide landing. Yeah. way. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Hopefully, hey, you know that that still is out there. Uh, Sierra Nevada's uh, Dream Chaser, so we'll have to just have to see how all this works out. Indeed, we will have to see what happens from there. So while we're talking about commercial space flight, Mark. Well, I've been uh, doing some uh, digging around in a couple of topics here, and I, you know, working for the Federal Aviation Administration parentheses, the people who try to keep flying safe, I found an article that discussed the fact that it takes years and sometimes decades to develop new passenger jets, but the government has taken kind of a hands-off approach when it comes to making sure that the spacecraft that we're talking about 
are designed for safe passenger flight. And you say, what? Of course they're safe. There's so much that goes into the preparations and the design and the testing. Well, yeah, but let me, let me draw some comparisons for you. Federal Aviation Administration, uh, Commercial Space Administrator George Neal made a statement about expecting some test flights as early as this year, and companies are planning to get in formal operations as early as next year. So we're close to seeing a lot of activity. The reason that we're that close is because eight years ago, this is the writer from KTVU.com, uh, the statement they made was the U.S. government took a hands-off approach, letting commercial space entrepreneurs develop their own craft without regulation. Okay, this is a, a kind of a contrast in terms, but just to think about it, let's talk about uh, one of the most recent new passenger jets that, uh, that we've heard about, the Boeing 787, the Dreamliner. Let's go back in time, and prior to... Uh, 2003, Boeing was working on an aircraft that would uh, fly at .98 Mach, just under the speed of sound. It was going to be called the Sonic Cruiser. Well, then 9-11 kind of shook up the whole aviation industry. And in January of 2003, Boeing announced they were replacing that Sonic Cruiser with a new type aircraft. They were going to call it the 7E7 later on. The 787 and the Dreamliner became its name. Well, from January of 03, that aircraft first delivery to an airline was September of 2011. So eight and a half years from when it was announced to when somebody got the keys and got to go fly it. Well, you know, that's for an aircraft that's certainly designed, tested, but it's also gone through with a fine-tooth comb by the government, and they actually certify the aircraft many, many times in, in many different phases. The uh, requirements for parts replacement on commercial aircraft is incredibly uh, strict. There's a, a focus in the last 10 years on counterfeit parts, parts that look right but aren't the exact manufacturer-approved or equivalent uh, replacement parts. So anyway, the FAA and Congress, they basically said that they weren't going to certify these spacecraft for human spaceflight. They're going to achieve an equivalent level of safety. And, of course, there's rules, but Congress says for the FAA to require these space launch companies to assure the safety of people and property on the ground. For space tourists, there's a different standard. What they go with is something called informed consent, where launch, opera launch operators are going to have to brief their customers on the hazards and all risks. Virgin Galactic spokesman said part of their job is to inform, as part of the FAA process, our customers of the risks. Doesn't necessarily take them away, doesn't make it as safe as uh, commercial airline flight, but they're doing a, uh, a job that's critical to the business for it to not only start, but also to continue. So just as a, um, another little sideline talking about government regulation, they're more talking about rules than absolute regulation in a lot of ways. 
we're going to be revisiting uh, government in a little later on the program too. So uh, so stay tuned. Oh yeah, we've got some good government stuff coming up from Eugene in a little bit. But in the meantime, we are going to go on our second round around the table already, since Gene helped out with the Orion story there. So, let's move on to round two around the table. And round two around the table involves a little bit of computer magic, if you (laughs) want to call it magic, that is. Yeah, really. (laughs) The magic involves hackers, and of all things for them to hack, it was the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. So apparently, according to a statement released, more than 5,000 security breaches happened last year in 13 major networks. So in 2010 and 2011, we're talking here, NASA reported 5,408 computer security incidents that resulted in the installation of malicious software on or unauthorized access to its systems, according to that statement. There were 13 successful hackings, including some of them from China. This is an interesting story. Yeah, and I'm, I, you know, you kind of wonder, you always hear about cyber attacks and a cyber war going on. I'm, you know, and it leaves one, if, if you're a little bit on the paranoid side, uh, to wonder if one is already really, really underway. Um, I'm looking at a, a an article um, from uh, ZDNet on uh, their their uh, zero day section. Um, uh, there were about 47 hacking attempts last year by NASA's computer by NASA's computer networks, and out of those 47 attempts, as you alluded to, Sawyer, 13 of those were were successful. Um, also, uh, I was also looking at the exact number. Um, now the real scary part about the whole, whole hacking thing was that one Chinese based breach resulted in, and I'm quoting from the article here, um, it, it resulted in, uh, critical systems and employee accounts at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory being compromised, including a full system access Ability to modify, copy, and or, ready for this, delete sensitive files, and even upload hacking tools into the system for basically having more fun with, with, with NASA's networks. With this particular attack, of, of uh, about 150 uh, credentials were stolen. That means 150 JPL employees' uh, credentials were, were compromised. Uh, and this particular hack um, involving this Chinese IP address is still under uh, investigation by the by uh, by the NASA by, by NASA. Um, just to put this in kind of sort of some sort of perspective, and I'm looking at the report that from uh, uh, Paul Martin, uh, the Inspector General General of NASA, basically saying that. Uh, NASA's assets include includes about 550 information systems that control spacecraft, uh, collect scientific data, uh, and enable NASA personnel to collaborate with with colleagues all over the world. NASA spends, according to the report, 1.5 billion dollars annually. That's billion with a B on IT related activities, included including about 58 million for IT security. Um, and it stresses, however, because IT networks are used for many NASA programs, it's really 
really kind of sort of difficult to even say that the $1.5 billion number is actually accurate. Um, but uh, in 2010 and 2011, here's the scary part. Uh, as Sawyer, you alluded to, there was about 5,408 security incidences, including one that was really interesting back in March of March of 2011, where a laptop was stolen. That laptop contained apparently contained some command and control codes for the International Space Station. Now, they're saying that the space station was no way in, in any shape or form compromised. But it, it, all of this goes to show how critical IT security really is and how you know, NASA really, really has to go ahead and take this, take this seriously. And it is beginning to uh, – there's a um, – uh, there is a, uh, a report out there, which, uh, Sawyer, if you don't mind, we'll, we could put up on the site um, that is available for download that kind of takes a look at what NASA is trying to do in the area of cybersecurity. And again, this is a really, really critical critical uh, item to, to go ahead and, and, uh, and take a look at. Which, if I can add, they're not really that, doing that great of a job of it. A couple more facts here from uh, Popular Science Online. Of that $1.5 billion IT budget that you alluded to, they have all of that. And um, ready for this, as of February 2012, you know how many of NASA's portable devices and laptops were encrypted? Yeah, this is a scary number. Go ahead, Sawyer. 1%. Yeah, that's that's frightening. What's even scarier is, uh, similar to the loss of the International Space Station codes for a short while there... 48 mobile computing devices were lost or stolen from NASA between April of 2009 and April of 2011. And this is some scary personal data from Jet Propulsion Laboratory and other NASA centers. Yeah, again, to allude back to the report, uh, it indicates that uh, $58 million is is spent uh, or invested in IT security. Uh, at NASA. However, um, again, it, you know, it, this is stuff that really, really has to, to be taken more ser- seriously. And I think you're going to see a far more uh, heavier investment in uh, internal IT security, excuse me, than um, uh, than we're seeing now. But I mean, I, I'm trying not to make a big deal out of out of uh, you know uh, Sawyer that that you had you had mentioned that that most of these IP addresses were from from China. I know that of late there have been uh, some of the ISS partners that want to get more nations involved in this, and yeah, China has been mentioned. Um, I know we're kind of sort of a little lukewarm about that idea for several reasons. Uh, that I'm not going to get into here, but yeah, again, you know, you want to go ahead and, and participate in a in an in a national or in an international uh, endeavor like the ISS. You know, how about stopping, you know, doing this nonsense and 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 you know, trying to infiltrate all these computer networks? You know, if if you want us to get, be be more confident in bringing your nation on board this thing, how about stopping? You know putting a stop to this and then maybe we'll think about it just to bring the story to its conclusion hackers have been arrested by the way regarding this in china great britain italy portugal and romania among other countries according to 13 news now central florida wow well while we're talking about governments how about we talk a little bit about the united states government gene 
while we were away, there was a congressional hearing where uh, John Holdren, who is the president's science advisor, testified in front of uh, the uh, House Science Committee. And uh, he was asked about what was going on with commercial crew, but also about the planetary science budget. And uh, Adam Schiff, who represents um, the, uh, pa- the his district is in Pasadena, California. Uh, of course, his his district is also where the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is. Basically, said, and I'm going to be quoting here from a article um, from ScienceMag.org. Uh, their science insi- insider section here. Uh, and I'm quoting Adam Schiff as saying, quote, I can't tell you how distressed I am to see this change in direction, meaning the planetary science budget, which took an absolute direct hit from the from the uh, Obama administration at this at this past uh, this past budget uh, deal. Apparently, the 2013 budget is not too friendly to planetary science. Uh, it has gutted it to the tune of about three hundred million dollars. Adam Schiff basically said that the. Uh, uh, we're at the point where we've given up our leadership in manned space flight, quote, and now we're about ready to give up our leadership in planetary science. Now, Schiff went ahead and publicly accused the Obama administration of, uh, of reneging on its commitment to, planetar- to the planetary society- science community um, to support a 2016 mission that would uh, go in orbit around Mars and a 2018 mission that would be essentially a sample return flight. Um, he said that the administration officials knew all along that these missions were going to have to be canceled because of the tight NASA budget, but they didn't want to contend with Congress because they knew that these particular cuts wouldn't fly and just went ahead and just didn't go ahead and give any indication that these were, these particular cuts were coming. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, you know, what did they know and when did they know it type stuff? Um, uh, Holdren responded by saying that there were a lot of tough choices in the president's proposed NASA budget for for 2013 uh, and realized that NASA needed about $450 million more than Congress gave it uh, from last year. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of that money has gone into the uh, the MAND program. Um, NASA's budget has been historically flat over the past few years. Uh, right now, the 2013 budget is set at $17.8 billion. Um, he basically said that uh, he didn't know that uh, the Mars missions were going to become un- unaffordable. And he can't speculate about in, you know, who in the administration knew about that in advance. Uh, but he also said that the Obama administration is not abandoning Mars. Take a look at the... Uh, um, the the uh, the MSL program, which was launched back in November, um, but uh, Schiff countered that saying that the three three million dollar cut is a major blow. And if you're going to go ahead and to quote him, if you're going to go ahead and fix planetary science, um, Holdren said you're going to have to figure out where that three hundred million dollars is going to come from. And he basically said somebody's ox has to get gored with this quote close quote. I don't know if things are going to change. I know that because of the NASA budget and the way it's sitting, we've had to pull out of uh, an agreement we've had with uh, the European Space Agency on the ExoMars project, um, which is the the two probes we were talking about before. 
Um, you know, and again, do we are we seceding our role not only in manned space, but also are we seceding our role in the planetary environment? Is somebody else going to have to step up to the plate? I know Russia, because of the Phobos grunt uh, failure, has kind of sort of stepped in and said, uh, well, we could talk about uh, keeping ExoMars going. And the Europeans have basically said, well, we're going to go do this thing without NASA anyway, so the heck with you. So, again, are we kind of reneging on, on promises here? Another thing that was talked another thing that was talked about uh, during this particular uh, uh, event here was that uh, representative Ralph Hall who is the chair of the uh, House Science Committee and again mark you you were kind of sort of thinking about all, all of this uh, with your your particular topic um, they were referring to safety and the safety of the commercial crew uh, systems um, and Ralph Hall had the following question, and I'll go ahead and read, read this directly. Uh, quote, NASA recently announced its intent to use the Space Agreement Act for the next round of funding for the commercial crew program. And I know you, meaning Holdren, are familiar with that. And I know you're anxious, as anybody else is, or probably so, that most folks to hear about the safety standards. But he said, I have a problem with this. Under the agreement, it's my understanding, meaning, meaning uh, Representative Hall, that NASA cannot require companies to meet any safety standards. I don't know how that could be, how that could have been left out, but how does the agency intend to ensure that these vehicles, meaning the commercial crew vehicles, are ultimately going to be safe enough to take NASA astronauts to the International Space Station? Well, the um, to go ahead and and I'm looking at the uh, this the uh, website Space Politics. Um, the, the NASA Space Act agreements used under the first two rounds of uh, the CCDEV funding, as well as the third round announced last month. Now, these things prevent NASA from strictly requiring companies to meet NASA spaceflight standards. However, it does say that it would be, quote, in the best interest, close quote, of these companies to meet these standards. It's sort of intimating that in order to be eligible for later contracts, it might be a good idea to adhere to what we've kind of sort of written down. But there's nothing written in stone that says you have to adhere to it. Well, uh, Dr. Holdren responded, uh, well, Chairman Hall, it's my understanding that NASA retains the responsibility for ensuring the safety of its astronauts, whether they're launched on commercial or government launches. I'm not familiar with that level of detail in these particular agreements that you're referring to, but I can't imagine that NASA does not retain that responsibility and ability. And if there's a problem with the agreement that would jeopardize that, I am sure we will fix it. So, again, uh, first I was, you know, if you think about the, the Space Act, it's saying, well, you don't have to adhere to the standards, but, uh, you know, hey, hey, nudge, nudge, say no more. You might want to. So in a way, though, I, I think they already are trying to adhere to it because NASA is basically saying, all right, it's not written in stone, but if you want to go ahead and keep getting money to fund your program, um, it might be a good idea to go ahead and stick with this. What do you guys think about all this? Uh, they're technically just safety standards. They're not necessarily rules. And when you look at some of NASA's past safety standards – They've kind of had a couple of flaws, so in a way it kind of makes a little bit more sense for a 
company or a privatized company or whoever it is to say, all right, let's look at what NASA did. Let's look at what we think they did right and what we think they did wrong, and let's try to improve upon it. So I don't think it's necessary for them to impose these rules. I think it may be a good idea for the companies to use some of them, but to correct it based on what they saw NASA did right or wrong or modify it for their spacecraft or their capsule or whatever they have. And I think that's personally the way to go is to utilize some of the NASA guidelines, but to basically improve on it and uh, customize it to what you have. So again, so you're saying that possibly um, companies like Sierra Nevada, SpaceX, Boeing, et al., they possibly are looking at NASA standards right now anyway and saying, you know, we could do better than that. That's and, my thought, at least. And they're, they're trying to, to go ahead and adhere to it, where, whereas, whereas Congress is sort of looking at it on, on the other end saying – uh, they they may just try to try to skimp and um, you know do some things that may put crews in jeopardy. That's so, my thought. When you look at the way that NASA handled itself in the very beginning, I, I mean, very beginning of towards the beginning of the space shuttle program, how once they started to vamp it up a little bit, they wanted to get those missions out, and they didn't care if safety got in the way. At some points, is what it seemed like. For example, 1986, where they went for the shortest turnaround time between missions, and that was in January of 1986, which we know how that ended. Or yeah, in 2003, when they were trying to get a mission out of the way so they could go back to completing the International Space Station. Yeah, both of those times there were there were schedule uh, schedule issues, but right. But still, that that's a lapse in NASA's safety. And my thought process is that if they take a look at that and they abide by what worked, because NASA had a lot of stuff that worked, especially at the end, yeah, and modify it to their spacecraft and to what they believe is right, I think that they're not necessarily looking at it as, oh, we're going to totally lapse on safety. My thought process is that they'll take what NASA did right and improve upon it. I guess time will tell, but in a, in, in a way, I, I'm forced to agree with you. Uh uh, you know, I, I don't think they're, they're deliberately going to go ahead and skimp on, on, on something like, like, like crew safety, uh, especially since you have people like Garrett Reisman over at, over at SpaceX, you know, who's, you know, got, you know, got some skin in the game because his friends are basically going to be flying these ships or, you know, other former astronauts that are, that are in places at these commercial crew companies. So they're not going to allow, I don't think, any safety lapses because they know their colleagues are going to be flying these these spacecraft. So, uh, I, I in, in some way, Sawyer, I have to agree with you there. I think what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, gee, what worked, and can we do stuff better? And we may actually, because of that, get a better better spacecraft in return. Again, as you said, time will tell. Now, another thing that time hasn't been able to tell lately is weather here on Earth. But, Mark, what about a little space weather news? Okay. Um, you know, we hear about space weather, and I've been reading a, a website that I just uh, kind of stumbled across. It's uh, called SpaceCast, and it's a European European Union uh, group effort that has uh, resulted in their providing space weather forecasts to a uh, an accuracy, and actually some of it's accuracy, but some of it's the fact that they're providing a forecast for different orbits, not just some of the ones that are of, of greater concern. But uh, if you were to wonder what exactly do you do 
when the space weather gets bad and we're headed towards a solar max which is an increased the 11-year cycle of the sun and an increased level of solar disturbances, sunspots and coronal mass ejections and all that fun stuff. Since we're headed into that, uh, what are the, the actions that spacecraft operators, satellite operators can use to get through it, to maybe make it safe and minimize the risk? Because it's a real concern that, uh, well, for instance, the largest magnetic storm ever recorded was in 1859. It was a little bit before the satellite age. And the estimates were that if a storm like this superstorm was to repeat itself nowadays, there would be over $30 billion in damage to satellites alone. And in 2003, there was a storm that caused more than 47 satellites to go haywire and led to the loss of one satellite valued at $640 million. So having somebody else watching it, you know, it's like how many weathermen would you like to have access to if you had important stuff going on in your life? Well, I'd like to have several because you never know who's going to have the best, uh, best forecast. But as far as what they can do to mitigate problems to spacecraft, satellites, they can do some things like power-saving actions, where they turn off unnecessary equipment, reduce the charge rate on batteries that are, that are on a satellite. They can decrease customer traffic. Thinking of a communication satellite in this case, um, they can shut down some sensitive imaging sensors. Um, and in parentheses, I see here astronomy or missile warning satellites. They can cut down on the use of star sensors, star trackers, and use some alternative attitude determination and control. They can power down the sensitive or radiation susceptible hardware. It's also suggested to postpone station keeping maneuvers unless they're absolutely vital. And keep a closer watch on your bird. Increase the, the frequency of, of when you're uh, mapping or determining exactly what the orbit is of your satellite. Because Increased solar activity can cause changes in the upper levels of the Earth's atmosphere, increasing drag, and if anybody remembers uh, the little nano sail D from last year, what uh, was anticipated to finally bring it down, and they were trying to predict how this solar sail, solar propulsion satellite, how it would respond to solar weather. Uh, they were very interested in tracking it and seeing when it actually came down. So. There's a lot of interesting uh, little tidbits to this, and I just thought I'd bring out a few that I found. And again, that's SpaceCast, and the web address is kind of complex, but I think if you look for SpaceCast and European Union, I think you'll find it. So that completes round two of our trip around the talking space table, and it looks like we're just about ready to begin round three, which comes back to me here, and it happens to coincide a little bit with space weather and some of the other things we've been talking about today. This all culminates into one here. So, let's say that you're an astronaut taking your two to three year space trip to Mars, all right? You're on the way. However, there is a massive solar mass ejection and you've got solar radiation heading towards you. And it hits you, and then you have increased levels of radiation in your body. That could be a problem, right? Well, 
With NASA's new technology, that could be fixed. This NASA technology, it is a tiny nanotube that would be placed inside your skin, most likely around your thigh area. It would be an outpatient procedure. And in doing so, this biocapsule made of carbon nanotubes will be able to diagnose and instantly treat an astronaut without him or her even knowing there is something amiss. Now, this technology was created by the Space Biosciences Division at NASA's Ames Research Center. And the man behind it is Dr. David Loftus, who invented this. Now, this is really a really interesting concept. And this was, I read this for the first time, and I was shocked. So what it would do is it would be filled with cells that could sense the increased levels of radiation and automatically disperse and dispense that medicine to help the body compensate. Now, we're not talking science fiction here. This is possible. Now, how would this even work? Well, these nanotubes are indissolvable by all known enzymes currently in the body, so it wouldn't dissolve, and there's no shelf life on it. It's porous in one spot, so it could release it immediately as soon as something is wrong and you wouldn't know. So basically, you could fill it up with this. It would last for two to three years, and then you would come back to Earth, and with everything depleted, they would do another outpatient procedure to remove it from you, and you'd be fine after your two to three year trip to Mars. Now, the other interesting question is, well, this is great for space, but everyone's favorite question, how does this affect me back on Earth? Well, here's a thought. If you're treating cancer and you need the chemotherapy, Rather than spreading it through your entire body, you could place it inside the nanotube and it would only administer it to that small area that's affected. Or, for example, if you have diabetes and you need insulin, rather than giving yourself an insulin shot, it would automatically monitor your blood sugar levels and if there's an increase or decrease, it would increase or decrease your dosage as necessary. Oh, this is fantastic. I'm just thinking of all the other possibilities of individuals that are on a medication regimen. That, that would need something like this to regulate their, their body. Like, say, again, if your blood is too thick or too thin, it could go ahead and measure that and say, okay, fine, you need X amount of, you know, wafering and, and distribute that in there. Um, and space technology at work, and, and for those of you who don't think that this is not affecting your life and, and space technology is not affecting your life, here you go. This is another example of what's coming down the pike, not just for uh, for astronaut crews going out to Mars, but for uh, for individuals that need uh, that that need uh, uh, this type of attention. So again, you're <laughs> putting another another spinoff that could possibly be in the pipeline. Is you know, Sawyer, did they say when this might actually be be deployed at any point in in the article? They didn't say when it's deployed, but they have examples of it. They have models of it, and they're working on it. I mean, this thing is really cool. And of course, each of these would be you know single application, single use. So you would have one example for uh, radiation, another example for any of the other risks that you might encounter during an EVA, such as heat exhaustion, sleep deprivation. Yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering how long it's going to take something like this to hit the market, you know, in in actual life. I mean, this is, you know, seeing this on the horizon, this is really going to help out. It may not may not be available right now. Well, but... here's the current schedule for it. They're scheduled to begin animal trials this year and okay. next, and then human trials would begin shortly after. So basically, uh, if all goes well, we would likely see these, according to Gizmodo.com, implanted at International Space Station astronauts 
sometime this decade. Wow. So, so this may end up happening before Orion. Wow. <laughs> oh, you're bad. But um, wow. I'm, so if it's going to be implanted in astronauts, current, you know, possibly within the within the next ten years or so, they'll probably test it to make sure how it works. This could be actually out there within. Oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say about maybe 10, 15 years after that. So we're probably looking at another 20 years. But but gosh darn it, this is going to be quite a breakthrough, and especially for the graying, you know, that the, the society that America is. This is this is going to be a real, real big, uh, big help. So again, you know, a NASA spinoff at work. Yep. To quote the article, it says, "20 years from now, these capsules may be commonplace. We all may have them under our skin, keeping us safe on Earth." Or maybe Mars. Hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> See, science does get you somewhere back on Earth. Indeed, it really does. Another man who's really involved in, in raising awareness about space is Neil deGrasse Tyson. You've got a story involving him, right? Sure do. He released a book this week, um, Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. Uh, he was interviewed by uh, Ira Flato um, of NPR this week about the book and what he was talking. And what he was talking about is uh, the whole premise of the book is, is really uh, what space really is all about, and how profoundly it can change uh, things and so on. Um, he was asked too, why why go in, into space to begin with, um, and why are we doing this? Why can't we afford it? You know, and all and and what? Why should we do this as a nation? Um, well, his response was one that might sound kind of sort of familiar for for longtime listeners to this program. Tyson said, and I'm quoting directly from the NPR website here and the interview, um, saying that. Yes, because it, meaning space, uh, it will spur on the economy directly. You can think of our presence in space and, you know, provided the way we are advancing in, in the space frontier, all, all right. None of this, well, it, it's all, all been 30 years since we've been boldly going where none have, have gone before. And basically saying that space does spur the economy off directly. If you take a look at where we were with Apollo and and how you know how many things came out of that and how many new inventions came out of Apollo, um, you know we we decided to do that type of renaissance again, um, even with, with just a a one percent you know rise in in what we're giving NASA right now, basically saying going from the point zero five percent of the budget to possibly maybe just one percent of the budget. Imagine what that what could happen if we did that, uh, or if we went back to you know the Apollo spending days. At that point, I'm not. <laughs> I, I I think it's a pipe dream that we would never really do that, as at least the the Apollo spending days. But you know, at least bump the budget up just slightly. If if you bump the NASA budget up to like say 20 billion, imagine what we we could we could pull off, and imagine what could be spurred off in the economy, and imagine what science and technology jobs could be spun off out of that so he gives basically the the same argument we've given here on this program several times that the national aeronautics and space administration could theoretically be an economic engine to go ahead and fuel the economy of the united states if we were smart enough to unleash it and that's something that we've basically said here several times 
Um, so again, when somebody when uh, that of the caliber of Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of goes ahead and says something to that effect, and it kind of makes you feel, yeah, maybe maybe you you were right in that in that respect. So. He's become basically the ambassador, and the fact I've seen him on Fox News, on CNN, on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I've heard the interview on NPR. He is a great ambassador, and I would highly suggest checking out the book because I know I'm going to. Yeah, I'm gonna we're, I'm gonna read that, and we'll probably go ahead and and do a review here for this program. Um, again, Dr. Tyson's become sort of the successor to Carl Sagan in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, he had a lot, some really big shoes to fill, but he's, he's up to the task. It's going to be, you know, just, just, just sit there and listen and, and, you know, you might learn something. All right. Let's finish with one more out of this world story from Mark. Okay. Well, I'm ready for some more out of this world stuff. Um, this is from, uh, one of the publications that we've actually had one of their folks on with us. This is from a different writer. This is from Graham Warwick with Aviation Week in one of the blogs there called On Space. The title of this was Signs of Life in Reflected Light. So let me tell you about it. Uh, I was going to mention first Earthshine, Sunshine, Moonshine, kind of as a way to think about it, but you know, we're finding all these exoplanets and they're in habitable zones around stars. How do you know if they have life? How can you guess? You know, are they, are they really, any, is there any likelihood other than the fact that they're in a, a place where temperature and, and such is, is in a habitable zone? Well, researchers at the European Southern Observatory have demonstrated one way that maybe we can tell if there is life on some of these exoplanets. They're looking at uh, Earthshine. Now, Earthshine is sunlight shines on the Earth, and it's reflected back to, say, the surface of the moon, which then reflects it back to Earth. Now, the ESO observatory observed this using the very large telescope array at Paranal, Chile, and they analyzed this faint light for reflections that indicated combinations of gases in the Earth's atmosphere that are telltale signs of organic life. And they're using some real sensitive technique called spectropolarimetry. Pardon my pronunciation. That measures the brightness, the polarization of the reflected light in different colors. Now, studying Earthshine as if it was light from an exoplanet, they were able to determine that the Earth is partly cloudy, it's part covered by oceans, there's vegetation present. They could also detect changes in cloud cover and the amount of vegetation over time. Now, these biosignatures in the Earthshine showed up very strongly, and they say the technique will make it easier to pick out faint reflected and polarized light of an exoplanet from the non-polarized glare of its host star. So this method of uh, measuring exoplanet shine is what I'm going to call it, may ultimately tell if there's a possible simple plant life based on photosynthesis that we're familiar with, maybe that that may be the case somewhere else in the universe. And as many people this have said up to us, uh, all you have to do is look up. Although in this case, it's nice to have some uh, one-of-a-kind type observation capabilities. 
This kind of sort of reminds me, Mark, of uh, if, if you read the opening chapters of Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot, it kind of goes through this little procedure on if you approached Earth, how would you know the place was inhabited? And uh, it, it kind of just sort of drills down on the whole thing. So it's an interesting read. So if anybody's got that book or if anybody wants to go ahead and borrow from the library, by all means, please, do, please go for it. But it's indeed, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. And on that note, I believe that brings episode 407 to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a heck of a lot of fun here, Sawyer. Thanks a lot. Oh, I love these as well. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Lots to talk about. I was beginning to think there wasn't anything going on until I actually started looking today. So uh, it's good to have lots of interesting things. Oh, there's always stuff going on. I've had a list going for three weeks now, and it's been changing every two days or so with new stories. And <laughs> Same here. That's what keeps this fun, and that's why I personally love this new format. And still want to hear from you guys what you think about the new format. If, whether you're liking it or not, be sure to drop us a line at mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Of course, you can send us notifications on Twitter at TalkingSpace or Facebook at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight, and, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.